Oh my god. I'm so funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's a teaser. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. I'm joined today by Jonathan Parker, who not a fellow master's student, didn't realize that right away, a PhD student in the history department at the University of Texas. Yep. Um, got your master's in the Czech Republic, I believe? Um, actually, no. I got my master's at the University of Glasgow in the UK, and um, it was a double degree. I got it there and also at uh, Jagiellonian University in Krakow. In okay, excellent. It's already one mistake. Michelle will be counting mistakes. Um, and today we're going to talk about sort of your academic path, what your PhD study is going to look like, mm-hmm. and how you end up in Austin. A lot of fun topics. Uh, so where do you want to begin? Do you want to start with the history of nationalism or the history of uh, Jonathan Parker? Um Whichever you prefer, I don't mind. So walk me through your education. Where'd you, where'd you start? I know you were. So I came to the U.S. um, back in 2007 and um, I've been living in Texas since then. And so I ended up doing my undergraduate here at UT Austin uh, for about four years um, in history and also in plan two. Um, Then when I finished here, I went and did my master's, as as I mentioned before, in Glasgow and then in Krakow. Um, and then towards the end of that, I was applying to do PhDs and I had a really good experience here as undergrad. I knew the professors here. Uh, I knew who, who I would want to work with. Um, so I came back here and here I am now. Great. Um, yeah, I became interested in Czech and in things East European, um, during my undergraduate degree. And, uh, in my master's, I actually began studying Czech properly. Cool. Um, and it's sort of been continuing from there. Awesome. And so is, I know your PhD efforts eventually going to yield something relating to the history of nationalism. Was nationalism always on your mind or were you sort of mirroring the worldwide trends you were seeing? I think I became interested in nationalism before I became interested in the region hmm. um, because of. It usually doesn't work that way for nationalists. But. Indeed. <laughs> yes, quite. Um because my family comes from England originally, but I grew up in Scotland. And then I, I, um, I was only 13 when I moved here. And I had a lot of sort of personal difficulties explaining where I came from and who I was. And also my accent has been a bit of a mess over the years. It's not a central Texas accent. No, it's certainly not. But it does fluctuate. Um, and to my, like, for example, to my grandparents, I sound quite American. Mm-hmm. But obviously to many Americans, I sound quite British. Um, and even though I grew up in Scotland, I, as you might be able to tell, I don't have a trace of a Scottish accent anymore. Um, so that got me interested in identity and in national identity mm. specifically. And then it was working with Tatiana Lichtenstein, Professor Tatiana, Professor Tatiana Lichtenstein here, that um, I realized how interesting the Czech context and the Austro-Hungarian context mm-hmm. more generally um, are for talking about um, uh, these issues. Sure. Yeah. So... I'd be, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. And so how do you see the Czech story playing in the wider nationalist sort of agenda? I mean, like a country like Poland that's been chopped and screwed by dozens of times in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Do you see those countries kind of having a kinship in that regard? I think, I think that the Czech and Polish experiences are quite different. Um, but certainly they're going to be some similarities. I think the Czech experience is different. For one example, um, in one way that they're different is that 
the Bohemian lands or the Czech lands were part of Austria-Hungary of a single empire, whereas the mm -hmm. Polish lands or what was Poland-Lithuania was part of Prussia, Russia, and Austro-Hungarian Empire um, until 1918. And but I think in both cases we find, looking historically, that the defin the sort of the definitions of what is what it means to be Polish, what it means to be Czech, of who is part of the nation and who isn't, have changed a great deal over time. I know in the Polish context, until the in the 19th century, there was this transformation for, where previously Polish had been quite an elite identity. Mm -hmm. um, it was mostly the nobility who considered themselves p Polish, part of the Polish nation. And p people who spoke Polish, but who were perhaps peasants or of a lower social status, were not really considered part of that mm -hmm. movement. Um, being Polish meant being sort of associated with the, the Commonwealth, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, and it's only towards the only around the mid 19th century, towards the end of the 19th century, that it became a more mass movement. And we find some similarities in the Czech context. I think in the Czech context, um, however, the the partition, well, Poland was partitioned at the end of the 18th century. Um, and Czech lands, the Czech lands had been part of Austria-Hungary for much longer before that. There was never this sort of moment of rupture. There was never this kind of moment of feeling like. Where we've been torn apart. Mm -hmm. It was more sort of gradual, according to the nationalist view, sort of an awakening of the nation. Yes. Although it's really debatable um, at what point uh, people really identified with this national identity. Um, a lot of historical research has shown that as late as the 20th century, the early 20th century, people could be very opportunistic and they could be very um, ambivalent or circumspect about their ad identities, depending on their specific circumstances. Um, so, yeah, sure. That's a great answer. And so, I mean, well, how do you see conflict playing into these narratives? Because obviously you see in Russia today how World War II is often um, called back to give this sort of idea of Russian chauvinism, Russian nationalism, what have you. Mm -hmm. And you have a country like Poland, obviously, who was massacred in World War II, Czech Republic partitioned. Are they stronger in these countries where they did go through like dire straits or do you think it sort of develops unevenly? I think it depends what you mean by stronger. I would certainly say that, at least in the, the Czech context or the Czechoslovak context, really, um, the Second World War really crystallized national identity for a lot of people because in the extreme circumstances of the Nazi occupation, uh, people were really forced to pick a side to be either German or Czech, whereas previously there had been a lot of ambivalence and there had been attempts by the First Republic to kind of settle this question. It was really the, the horrible experiences of the, of the occupation that forced people to pick a side. Not to mention, of course, the Holocaust and the massacre of Jews, and as well as as well as Romani people mm -hmm. um, in the Bohemian lands. So, I suppose in that sense, it, it created a stronger sense of identity. Yeah. Um, because after the Second World War, or the other thing I should mention is that shortly after the Second World War, um, anyone who anyone who identified as German in the Bohemian lands was expelled. Sure. Which is about two to three million people. Mm -hmm. um, so. Com that combined with the Holocaust, you could consider that a kind of ethnic cleansing. Mm -hmm. um, so since then, apart from minority Roma populations and other minority populations in the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia and what is now the Czech Republic is pretty much was mostly Czech. Mm -hmm. Of course, in Czechoslovakia there was Slovak area. There was Slovakia. Um, but yeah. so I think there's a bit of causation and correlation there. How conflicts created more 
things that look like nation states and nationalism inevitably developed out of that or? Well, the nationalist movements had been there since the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the main problem that they had had, both German and Czech nationalist movements that they'd had, was in convincing a wider part of the population to identify nationally, to have a national identity. Um, so I think when the Nazis came along and, and sort of took these categories very seriously. You had to be something. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. And there, was so, no, there was no room for ambiguity. Right. And so, I mean, is your, is your study focused on early 20th century, late 19th century? So yep. I know there's sort of that idea of, I assume you read uh, Bailey's The Birth of the Modern World, I believe he talks about sort of like okay. the awakening of nationalism in the late 19th century, how these terms didn't really exist before. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of where your work is centered on? Or are you moving sort of yep. logarithmically? So um, my broad interests would cover the period from 19, from 1848 to 1948, that kind of nice, clean century, from the revolutions in 1848 to the communist takeover in Central Europe. But um, for my PhD, at the moment, I'm still in my first year of the program. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> yeah. force your hand. But uh, I'm planning to focus on 1918 and on the process of building the new republic, of building a nation state um, as Austria-Hungary was collapsing. Um, so looking specifically at the Czechoslovak context. Okay, gotcha. Um, so how does so, like Serbian nationalism play into that narrative? Because Serbian nationalism. Yeah, because well, I'm, I'm picturing just sort of like the cause of uh, War One. how you still had sort of this old world, you had monarchs, you had sort of new wave politicians, it's very unclear who's calling the shots in these European countries. Um, but then you have national identity, you know, bubbling in the Balkans. And I don't think the older world really knew how to, well, how to communicate with those two people. I mean, I think to some extent, we, so we certainly, we have this idea that nationalism and empires are always antagonistic. They always have a, a, an antagonistic relationship. But recently, I think a lot of historical research has shown or has indicated that certainly in the Habsburg context, in the Austro-Hungarian context, nation and empire were very much intertwined. Mm-hmm. And they, to some extent, they, they could support each other or nations could develop within this imperial context. Um, and in fact, it wasn't until quite late in the First World War that many nationalists in the Austro-Hungarian Empire wanted to have independence. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very much a minority movement um, well, it virtually didn't. There was virtually no movement for independence before the war, okay. and then during the war, for most of the war, it was more, more mainly a minority movement. I would say. So you see, it's one of these sort of uh, post hoc developments. It's sort of as people saw how bad things were getting, mm-hmm. and as people's faith in the the ability of the imperial state to kind of take care of them materially, as that faith deteriorated um, over the course of the war, people were looking for other options, mm-hmm. and the nationalists provided one of those options. So, for example, towards the end of the war, there were massive food shortages all over the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And it turned out that for, some, for whatever reason, nationalist organizations were able to uh, provide food. They were able to find resources to do this. Um, and the state, being otherwise unable to itself, sort of delegated this power to them. Hmm. But then people saw, okay... It's that the nationalists are the ones who are actually providing us with the stuff we need mm-hmm. to survive rather than the state. So that, mm. along with other factors, which I won't get into, um, undermine state legitimacy and then reinforce the legitimacy of nationalists. Mm-hmm. So again, like I mentioned earlier, it can be quite opportunistic. Sure. Um, I mean, do you think that's a product, too, of the state like feeding soldiers instead of civilians? I think a lot of people enlist in World War One yeah. because it's the only way to know you were going to get a meal. <laughs> Sure, to some extent, yes. 
Um, I love being a little bit wrong. So I know that's where you like come in. (laughs) Um, I, I would need to read up more on this specifically, Mm -hmm. I think, but I think in the Austrian Hungarian context and for both, for both Germany and Austria, Hungary and the other, and, and, uh, Bulgaria and Ottoman empire, I think the, the economic blockade was quite, um, had quite dire effects. Um, and there were certainly some logistical issues within the empire. Um, cooperation between the Hungarian and sort of Austrian or Translithenian or Cisleithenian uh, authorities wasn't wasn't always as much as it could have been mm-hmm. um, because, of course, there was a dual monarchy by the First World War and right. the two parts were separated uh, in many ways administratively. And so, I mean, do you see nationalism sort of the natural elaboration of just like any shortcoming a state can provide? I think of World War II in a lot of ways the downside of the Great Depression kind of led to these, especially Germany, exploiting some cause and, you know, having a nationalist output of that. Do you think there's sort of that push and pull between sort of vague, you know, just kind of being shortchanged somehow, and there's there's always nationalist pull back? Do you think that's actually a theme in history or there? I, w- I wouldn't say that nationalism is inevitable or, I mean, it's with any kind of movement, it's people people who have ideas about how the world should be, and they are trying to implement these ideas um, in the world around them. And then people are responding to these ideas. So it's not inevitable. It's a, People are still making mm-hmm. choices about things. It's not some natural right. force. It's not some force of nature, uh, like a hurricane or something. <laughs> it's, like I said, people making choices. Mm-hmm. So I would certainly, I would say that in the, in, the, in the context of the Great Depression, in the context of the First World War, it was one of many discourses, I think, that um, were were available to people to use or to um, to think with. Um, so you so you don't see like sort of any science behind it. It's just kind of people act in certain well, ways and follow certain I mean, things. You can. It's still. I would certainly say it's still possible to sort of think about how people make these decisions, but people can be quite unpredictable. Right. Um, so I would, I would be very, I would be very hesitant to say that, um, the nationalist answer was always inevitable Mm -hmm. or that it was the only answer. Um, I think it's, it's helpful to think about how it could have been different. Okay. I mean, and this, I think this is where, when it, where it becomes helpful to do really detailed history and to Mm -hmm. really look into the specifics of individual people making decisions about these things. So what are the sort of popular counterfactuals you'll see in nationalist discourses? Like if X didn't happen, uh, Franz Ferdinand didn't turn down that street, X, which I don't, I think that's actually a very poor counterfactual because there are plenty of events leading to war one. Mm-hmm. I think we just need an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Are there any in the context of perhaps World War II, just sort of isolated events that lead to these nationalist calls that. I think I think there maybe were specific decisions that the Austro-Hungarian leadership took in the First World War that undermined its legitimacy in the war or prior to the war during the war. Okay. I mean, certainly the decision to well, it's controversial to say who decided to start the war. I love controversy, <laughs> um, but I think during the war, um, the decision that so at the beginning for the first two years of the war, a lot of the sort of democratization and rights that people had accumulated over the preceding decades were more or less overnight um, dismissed by the military leadership for reasons of of military expediency. And that, for the first two years, um, really um, undermined people's faith in the state. Um, Mm -hmm. There was this idea of a a Reichsstaat, Reichsstaat, um, 
where people were more or less equal before the law. I mean, it was not perfect, but a lot of progress had been made. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, Australia was a fairly democratic state. I don't think, I think women still didn't have the vote. And there were still limitations on the franchise, but sure. progress was being made. 1914, yeah, that's not mm-hmm. so bad. Yeah. Uh, it is bad. It is bad. In, in contrast to, historic. for example, uh, America, Tsarist Russia, for example, oh, sure. next door. Um, much more democratic. It's always a great so. counterfactual to make your country look a little better. Well, Tsarist Russia didn't have this. So. Well, it's interesting, you know, to think to think about how Britain and France were allied with Russia against Germany and Austria-Hungary in this regard. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the web yeah. of uh, alliances prior to World War One, which is like, yeah, this is going to go to war somehow with Germany just centered between France and Russia and England arguing with Germany over who has the biggest Navy. And then you have this mess going on the Balkans. I mean, everyone's sort of stable, but they're stable on each other in a very, it's like precarious stability. I don't know. I mean, within, well, I guess moving on in general. Yeah. How, so if you were to suggest um, any reading or any films regarding nationalism or just something you'd like, what is yeah. the last good thing you've read, seen, or that you'd like more people to read or see? Hmm. Well, the basic text for nationalism would be Benedict Anderson's Imagine Communities, mm-hmm. uh, which is very well known. Recently, I read um, a book called The Habsburg Empire and New History by Peter Judson, which came out just a couple of years ago. Um, and if anyone interested in Central European history or European history more generally, um, I strongly recommend that. Um, it's a really good synthesis of a lot of new research talking about nationalism in that context um, from basically the late 18th century until the end of the empire. Um, so, yeah, that's that's an excellent one. Um, Have you read uh, Sleepwalkers, War One? I'm afraid I haven't. Okay, that's a good one. Not It's not about nationalism specifically, but it's about yeah. sort of that's why it's the Serbian question, kind of these small groups that before in sort of the older terms of the world we have would be, you know, irrelevant. Like the small country is, has no meaning to us. Their ability to rouse their people with these sentiments that didn't really exist before made the rest of the world kind of have to reckon with them in new ways that may have not existed. I guess one of the main uses of nationalism is to mobilize people mm-hmm. for particular causes, often violent, unfortunately. Um, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not very familiar with the Serbian context, I'm afraid. Um, but I think one, one interesting thing I suppose would be that, um, there was a, there was a certain sense of imperial patriotism in the Habsburg empire before the war. Um, people felt loyal to the empire for one reason or another. And there's this famous, um, famous example that's sometimes brought up as an example of how the nationalists brought down the empire. There was a case, I think on the, on the Eastern front. In Galicia, where a Czech legion or Czech division, or mostly Czech division, um, basically defected hmm. from the Austrian Empire to the Russian Empire. But, but actually, there is no historical evidence for this. Hmm. But this, uh, this story has been promoted by two very different groups of people. On the one hand, by Czech nationalists who insist, as this, insist that this is proof that um, the Czechs never really wanted to go along with the empire at all. And then also the sort of old guard um, in, the imperial, in the imperial military leadership who were saying, look, the nationalists sold us out. They're the reason. It's not, it's not because of our bad decisions. So these two very different groups of people supporting the same story mm. for very different reasons. Um, so anything is exploitable in the nationalist context. Uh, yeah, I mean, different. the same, same stories can be interpreted differently in different mm. narratives. Certainly. Sure. Uh, 
Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. I'm excited for your research in five years, six years. <laughs> we'll see. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> About five or six years. Well, I'm sure some good stuff will trickle through in the meantime. Great. Good luck with everything. Thanks for coming on. The views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening to the Slavic Connection. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.